Thank you all very kindly for your words last week and for my wonderful gift, uh, two gifts. I really appreciate the gifts that you've made to the Memphis Center for Urban Theological Studies. Uh, one of the great needs in Memphis is to get theological resources and biblical interpretation resources to those who have the least, and that's MCUT's mission. Nothing can make me happier than that. And my wonderful Amen Iron uh, uh, sculpture is sitting on my desk and reminds me of you guys every day. I'm thankful for that, and I'll be taking that home with me here just even this week. Uh, just think about all the hours that some of you have put into Bible study. Think about all the hours that some of you have put into to, uh, Amen Bible study. Just think about all those hours you've invested to come in here early and study the Bible and all the other studies you've done. What if, what if I told you that it was a total waste? <laughs> what you'd say, well, I think Sandy's lost his mind. But what, what if there was something that could happen to you that would just remove all the benefits of all your Bible study so that you ended up saying, I just, just wasted my time? Well, the Bible actually says that there are things that can do that to you to remove all the benefits of all your Bible study as though you had no Bible study at all. And the reason we know this, Jesus had to teach his disciples this because they were wondering why so many people were hearing the word from Jesus himself personally and not responding, not benefiting from it. And they, they were befuddled, and of course it... it rattled their faith. They were wondering, is Jesus really the one? So Jesus told a little story, which is the way he often operated, and he told a story about the four soils. You remember? And he said the sower went out and sowed the seed. Nothing wrong with the sower, nothing wrong with the seed, but it falls on different types of ground. You know, you have, of course, you have the hard ground where people walk, and the seed that falls there never gets into the ground. The birds come and take it away. So some people, they hear the word with their ears, but it, it never goes in. They're just hard-headed and hard-hearted. And then he said there's, a, there's another type of soil where the seed actually does go in the ground, but it's rocky soil. It's very shallow. And so you, you get an initial reaction. But then when the tribulations come and persecutions come, it's like the sun beating down on that plant and it just withers because it, it has no depth in the soil. And the third one he said is even more disappointing because you've got depth of soil and it springs up and it looks like it's going to be doing really fine. There's going to be a lot of benefits to your Bible study. And then something chokes it out. You remember? The weeds. Ah, the, the farmer forgot to weed. And the weeds choke out the seed. And this is my main point. What are the weeds? It's the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. It's the things of the world. It's worldliness that can choke out all the benefits of your Bible study as though you hadn't done any Bible study at all. And so we're to love the world because God loves so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But then there's an aspect of the world that we, that we have to be sure we don't love. So we're loving and not loving at the same time. It's Kind of subtle, isn't it? We're going to examine that today because this is vitally important. All the issues that we've studied from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and amen Bible study for you have been around, we've just about covered Genesis to Revelation. And just think of all that study going to waste because we're allowing to get choked out by something in our lives, some weeds that we've not uprooted uh, and the garden that we've not cultivated. Well, let's, let's look at 1 John. And we're going to study just three verses today. You know, sometimes we'll study three chapters. But sometimes there's, there are these nuggets where we just have to slow down and look more carefully at just a few verses. And that's what we're going to do today, verses 15, 16, and 17. And it's almost an aside. Now, you remember in 1 John, John's writing to people who do profess faith in Jesus Christ. And he's writing to them that they will know that they know him that they will know that they have everlasting life. And he gives them basic tests where they can self-examine. And these tests are largely along three lines. One is a doctrinal test. Do you really believe that Jesus not just appeared, 
to be in the flesh, but actually came in the flesh. The second person of the Trinity came and took on flesh. Do you believe that doctrinally? Secondly, there's an ethical test. Are you walking repentantly? Are you walking in the light? Are you disclosing and revealing yourself and allowing yourself to be corrected? And are you constantly being corrected to get back on the path? Is it that kind of life you're living in the light? And the third test is, do you really love your, your brothers? Or do you just tolerate them uh, in order to go to Bible study? There's a, there's a relational test, a love and affection for the brothers. We've seen these three tests, and we've no, also noticed that in John's first epistle, the structure is not linear, it, it's a spiral. So these same, same three tests are going to come around and around. We're going to hear them over and again as we go through 1 John. Now, when he's just finished talking about uh, the test uh, of love, he, he says at, at the begin, end of verse 14, and the word of God abides in you. He's talking to the, to the young men. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So he's reminding us that something dramatic has happened in our lives. We've overcome the evil one by virtue of giving our lives to Christ and inviting him, the great conqueror, to come into our hearts. And he conquers the evil one through us. And then he, he launches off to show us how to live this life. And this is where we pick it up at verse 15. He says, and I read, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now you may remember the story of Demas he was a companion of the Apostle Paul. When Paul wrote to the Colossians from a Roman uh, prison, he mentioned that he was sending greetings from Luke, who was with Paul, and Demas. And then just about three years later, when Paul is in his second imprisonment, knowing that he's going to be executed, he gives us this astonishingly bad news. He mentions that Demas has abandoned me. Why? Because of his love for this present world. Here's a man who is accompanying the greatest evangelist and church planter who ever lived, had the distinct privilege of being part of his ministry, was hearing the word of God from the Apostle Paul, and he left for this reason. He loved this present world. Gentlemen, the dangers in this present world are far greater than we realize. And that's the reason that John has taken these, these moments in his first epistle to warn us very severely. Let's look Roman numeral number one. The love of the world is incompatible with the love of God. That's the first thing we've got to get in our heads. These two things do not go together. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So it's either one or the other. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot love both God and mammon or money or temporal material things. You can't love both. You have to make a choice. And there are too many of us in the church that are trying to love both, trying to have a foot in two canoes, and it's going to kill you. You're not going to be able to endure. You're not going to be able to pull this off. Now, what does John mean when he speaks of the world here? You always have to look at the context in which the word is being used, and that's the way with any word in the Bible. Otherwise, you're going to misinterpret. Obviously, God loves the world. He loves the people in the world, and we're to love the people in the world. And obviously, God made everything for our enjoyment. So John is not just talking about the creation and the beautiful things in the creation. And he's not talking about other people that we're supposed to love, sinners and, and saints. What he's talking about is the world order. 
And I'll give you an example. If you turn over to chapter 5 in John's epistle, verse 19, he says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So he's talking about the world order, the fallen world that is under the power of Satan himself. It's that world order, that systemic thinking that sucks you in and destroys you. That's what you must not love. We love the world in the sense of the people of the world, but we do not love the world or the things in it. Now, how do you make the distinction? Well, here's what John Wesley said about it. You Methodists will like hearing from John Wesley this morning. And, I, and I'm not going to counter that with a quote from John Calvin. I'm just quoting John Wesley. <laughs> Wesley rightly said, Anything that cools my love for Christ is the world. Anything that cools my love for Christ is the world. So money is a good thing. But when your relationship to money begins to cool your relationship to Christ, it has become the fallen world to you. So it's the things that become an idol. That is something that you're devoted to. Something that you're devoted to in a way in which you should only be devoted to the Lord. So an idol is something that displaces the worship of God in your life. Worldliness is something that cools your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where worldliness is, and you must have nothing to do with it. See what Paul says in that next verse. For all that is in the world is not from the Father, it's from the world. All. So he makes no exceptions. There are no things in the world that you can idolize. There are no things that you can, you can put up ahead of God as being most important. It's really interesting if you look at the Ten Commandments. The first commandment, there shall be no other God before you. Tenth commandment, you shall not covet. And there's a sense in which that's a bookend. Because when you covet, you are desiring something more than God himself. And that's, that's what it means to covet. You want it for yourself because you've made an idol out of it in your heart. It may be somebody else's possession, but you, you desire it. You covet it. And what you've done is violate the first commandment. That there shall be no other gods before you. So God is God and God alone. And the world must not be loved because, as Jesus said, you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You'll love the one and you'll hate the other. So the love that you give to the world, you've just taken it from God and replaced it with despising and hatred. That's the way it works. So we can't have anything to do with it. Imagine this, that uh, after Amen Bible study, I get my second cup of tea. Then I go by my girlfriend's house and pick her up, and she's a beautiful 24-year-old blonde chick, and I take her home for breakfast. And I walk in the house, and I say, hey, sweetie, speaking to my wife, of course, and she says, who's that with you? And I said, this is my girlfriend, and uh, she's going to have breakfast with us. You're what? No, this is my girlfriend. I want you to know I'm, I'm married to you. And, and my wife says, what? you can't have a girlfriend. Oh, yeah, I can have a we're still married, you and I, we're, we're husband and wife, but this is, this is my, my consort, this is my, my girlfriend. Now, you know, my wife is really sweet, but I think my face would not look the same tomorrow as it does today <laughs> if, if I tried to pull that off. And I don't think you're going to get by with that either, and I don't, I don't suggest you try it. That's how ridiculous it is for you to devote yourself to your career, for you to devote yourself to your vacations, and the things you love to do, for you to devote yourself to your possessions, for you to devote yourself to your bank account, for you to devote yourself to your reputation, and to love those things rather than loving God. Jesus said, if you don't take up your cross, that is, if you don't die to all that, you cannot follow me. To follow him takes undivided devotion. Otherwise, you're coming to a prayer meeting with some girlfriend on your arm, and it's ridiculous. You're coming to Amen Bible study, and you've got your suitor with you. It's ridiculous. Don't think that God doesn't see through it, and he's saying you've got to make a choice. Somebody here probably needs to make a choice today. There's something in your life that you know you're attached to that's got you by the short hair, and, and everything that happens 
on that affects your, your life more than anything else, more than God himself. You need to let go of that and do it decisively and do it today. Get rid of the girlfriend. That's what I'm saying to you. Now, don't take that out of context. If you're not married and you got a girlfriend, I didn't just tell you to go break up with your girlfriend. Although if God was telling you that's between you and the Lord. Now, look what he says about this incompatibility. Look at verse 16, and this will be A on your outline. The love of the world comes from the world, and so do its lovers. The love of the world comes from the world. Here's what John is saying. Don't you realize it's not just that money comes from the world, but your love for the money comes from the world. It's all part of the world system, and you're being sucked into it. And it's going to destroy you. It's going to eat your lunch. It's, it's a ruse. It's a trick. You're being snookered. And so all of this is coming from an alien kingdom that's luring you and trying to destroy you. It's, it's just like a rat trap. You know, the cheese is there and you're just, you know, think you're just fine. Nobody's watching. This is going to work just fine. And then you get the cheese, whack! You know, it's all over. That's what's happening to you. He says, everything in the world and the love of the world comes from the world. It's not coming from God. Don't bother to bow your head and thank Him for your adulteress. You know, it doesn't come from Him. It wasn't His gift in the first place. You took it from the world. Now, He shows us some of these things that are in the world that destroy us, and He puts it into three categories, and we've known this, the older ones of us, you remember the KJV, it's the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Well, here we have the ESV translation, which is very helpful. It says, the desires of the flesh, fleshly desires. Paul describes these in Ephesians 2 as the passions of our flesh. And he says in Romans 13 that we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You put him on. He's in your heart, but you also put him on daily, moment by moment. You put him on like a coat, like clothing. And he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, making no provision for the flesh. Burn the bridges. Make no provision to go back to it. Burn those bridges. And so it's the flesh, it's the desires that are wrong and sinful that are inside of us, that are in the indwelling sin that's in the members of our bodies, the things that we can still feel, these appetites that we know are wrong. Who wouldn't love to have this beautiful girlfriend, you know, in one sense, in our sinful self? And so these are the passions of, the lust, of lust that are waging war against you. And sometimes even our prayers reflect our flesh. All we're praying for is for us to be successful making that big sale today. All we're praying for is the Grizzlies to win the next game we go to or whatever it is. I find myself praying prayers that are just, you know, rotating around me uh, and I think the reason that we're so engaged in the passion, passions of the, of the flesh is that when we engage them, it feels like love. It's a counterfeit for love, but it feels like love. It's like if you're an alcoholic and, and you, you fall off the wagon and you're sitting there enjoying that alcohol. You know, there's, there's, it's an elixir that's making you feel like life is good and everything's Fine, but you know when you get away from it, all you've done is just dumb yourself down, anesthetize yourself while you're destroying your body and your relationships and spending money uselessly. So when you get away from it, you can see it, but in the moment, it feels like love. It's like an affair. It, you know, you, you get back and look at it and you go, what in the creation did I ever do that for? What was I thinking? That was the nuttiest, most stupid thing, evil, wicked, you know, and you just want to kill yourself. But in the moment, it felt like love. But it's a huge counterfeit. It's a ruse. It's a trick to suck you in and eat you up. So this is the problem with lust is that in a distorted, short-term way, it actually kind of feels like love. And so in an age when we're assessing things by how we feel, we're in a very subjective age. Everything is based on how I feel. I remember talking to a young guy one time who was, he was tinkering with the idea of divorcing his wife. 
And I was amazed. His wife is a very nice lady. Uh, they had a child. And I'm sitting there, and I'm saying to him, so what are you thinking? Uh, you know, there, no, there were no grounds for the divorce. And here's what he said. He said, I'm just trying to figure out how I feel. And I just want to go, whack, 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 whack. Who cares how you feel? <laughs> You're dealing with the word of God. You're dealing with a marriage here. You're dealing with your obligations. Who cares how you feel? I didn't do that. I'm a pastor and a Presbyterian. But that's, what, that's how I felt. And so we now assess almost everything based on how it feels to us. Everything's involutional. It's coming from the inside out. Instead of getting outside of ourselves, looking at God, contemplating His revealed will in His Word, using the gift of conscience and logic that He has given us to deduce from that revelation what the framework for human ethic is, and then living with a sense of holy and joyful duty based on what's been revealed to us from the top down. Instead of trying to figure out from our feelings, from the bottom up, how we feel and therefore create this ethical framework that's perfectly custom designed to suit your ethical preferences. So we have to reverse this entire thing. When you're thinking like that, starting with yourself and how you feel, like a narcissist does, everything is based on how I feel what I'm thinking, how it affects me. When you start there, you're into destruction. You're not going to survive. You've got to get in touch with God and love Him. And when you do, it transcends your own flesh. It transcends your temporal desires. It puts you into the realm of the eternal. And you're living your life in view of the long term, heaven itself. That's the way we got to live. And John is saying, do not love the world or anything in the world because everything in the world comes not from the Father. It's coming from the world. And your fleshly desires are bound to this temporal world that's under judgment. And he says, this is one of them, the desires of your flesh. So you've got to realize you've got a war going on. And you have to confront yourself and tell yourself to get control of yourself. And you have to tell your flesh where to get off. You're always doing that. There's always an internal self-control that demands leadership. You gotta, if you're going to be a leader, you start by leading yourself and getting yourself under discipline. And that will be for the rest of your life. Always. till you draw your last breath. The last thing you say to your family before you go on, that's a matter of personal discipline. You're thinking, what would please God? What will encourage these people? You're not thinking about your dying self. You've gotten over that. You realize that's a matter of your flesh. You're being bound to the world and thinking about yourself. Well, too bad. So we're supposed to feel sorry for you because you're leaving this world? Have you thought about what you just thought? No, you're going to another place that's far better. We're not feeling sorry for you. And you shouldn't feel sorry for yourself. You've got a ministry to carry out no matter what circumstance you're in. And in order to carry out that ministry, to glorify God and serve your neighbor, you got to get a hold of yourself and bring it under control and tell your flesh where to get off. That's the only, that's the only way to win the battle. And here's the good news. You have all the resources you need. You can win this battle. The Lord Jesus Christ is inside of you. And He's much greater than he who is in the world. Yeah, the devil is controlling the world system, but he's damned. He knows it, and he is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He only is doing this as long as Jesus gives him rope to do it, and then he'll hang himself. So here we are, number two. Look at 16c, and he speaks of the desires of the eyes. So we have the desires or the lust of the flesh, and then the desires or the lust of the eyes. Of course, the classic example here is, is Eve. And in Genesis 3, verse 6, you see how Eve was enticed, and it was through her eyes. You know, it started with her ears. And, of course, we know women, men are aroused uh, sexually through their eyes, women largely through their ears. Uh, and women hear things, and they hear things within things, and they, they diagnose what they hear, and they hear differently than we hear. But, so Satan starts talking to her. 
And so he begins with the ear gate, but pretty soon it involves the eyes. And in chapter 3, verse 6, we're told, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And then, of course, she, did, she wanted to share it with her dear husband. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So she saw that it was good for food, that it was delightful, and that it would give her a new area of education. There would be some things that she would learn. There would be a deep awareness of the fullness of the creation, including evil itself. She would be a worldly woman. She would have wisdom about evil itself. No one would be more sophisticated than she would be. No one would be more urbane in their outlook than she would be. She would know all the gossip and all the rumors and everything that's going on behind every little tree. She would know, she would know society. It was delightful. That's the problem with it. You see something with your eyes and it's delightful. And of course, that was the beginning of the fall of humankind. That was the fall of humankind. Later on, you see it with Achan. You remember when Joshua was taking the promised land and they were winning a battle and then they were going to fight Ai and they said, oh, we don't need all of our troops to do that. It's a small little village. Just take 3,000 people. And they got whacked and 36 people got killed and Joshua tore his clothes and went before the Lord and said, what in the world? And he, they pointed out that someone had violated the commandment of God and had kept the devoted things. And sure enough, through a process they discovered that Achan had taken 50 shekels of gold and, and 200 shekels of silver and a beautiful garment from Shinar. And he said it was a beautiful garment. He saw it. He wanted it. He coveted it. It was something delightful to his eyes. And gentlemen, we live in a world with beauty all around us. Human beings are beautiful. The trees of the field are beautiful. To see various places of the world is beautiful. To see great athletic performance is beautiful. Lots of things are beautiful. But there's a difference between admiring beauty for the sake of glorifying God and grabbing it for your own sinful purposes. And this is what John is saying. You, you, you must forsake this acquisitive eyesight. It's tearing you up. And if there's something that's indicative of the American culture, and people from the outside, the non-Americans, see this readily. And when they think of Americans, this is what they say. They just love to acquire things. They love to spend. We're spenders. Do you remember during the Great Recession? Remember what President Bush said we should all do during the Great Recession? Go spend, go, go shopping. There you go, the American way. Let's, let's solve this, we'll go shopping. Forget all the dishonesty in Wall Street. <laughs> forget all the people who spent on houses far more money than they could ever uh, acquire to pay for that house and put themselves in enormous debt. Forget all those problems. Just go shopping and you'll solve our problems. That's the American way. Acquire. Go get stuff. Keep it going. This is going to end somewhere. <laughs> and, of course, all of us in our investment portfolio are trying to figure out when's it going to end. Is it now or is it later? You know? Uh, and... It is, because we're, we're shoppers, we're acquirers, we're acquisitive, we're greedy. The whole culture is very greedy. You have about 6% of the world's population that's consuming about 20 to 25% of the world's resources. I mean, it's unbelievable what we, what we eat up, what we consume. And then we get so much stuff, we can't even use it all. So we got all this trash. And food for us becomes trash. You know, we have enough food to feed everybody in the world beautifully, amply. But we're just bringing all the food into us. And we're fat, we're overweight, and we have more food than we want. We throw away enough food to feed the world every year. It's the American culture. This is where you live. This is where you were brought up. This is where you were taught how to think and how to live. It's intuitive. It's in your blood. You don't even recognize it. Tim Keller uh, in New York says, 
that in his pastoral experience there, he's had people come to him and confess all kinds of sins. You know, lots of sexual sins, uh, lots of relationship sins. Just, he says, the whole uh, gamut of ethics that have been violated. People have come to him and confessed and asked for his help. He said, in 20 years of pastoral ministry in New York with thousands and thousands of people he's helped, he said, never once in all those 20 years has anyone confessed to me this sin that they're greedy. Not once. Now you think about Manhattan. Do you think they have a problem with greed? I mean, where would you put it on the scale of sins they're probably dealing with? Would it be somewhere near the very top? No one admits it. It's of the very sin itself. It's self-denying. It's shameful. You know, it used to be that nobody would talk about their sexual sins. That was so shameful. Now we talk about it. That's about all we talk about. But the new sex is greed. No one will talk about it. No one will admit that they're struggling with greed. It's amazing how it's self-inoculated. And John is saying, it's killing you. It's robbing from you the growth of the word in your life because you can't be greedy and be a follower of Jesus. There was one really greedy person following Jesus, and you know what happened to him. You can't survive this. You will self-destruct. You will walk away. You will, like Demas, eventually abandon wherever you are, whatever fellowship you're in, you will abandon it. Because at some point, the fork in the road will be presented to you and the love that you have for things and stuff is going to come out and you're going to take that, that fork. It's going to be the wrong one. As Yogi Berra said, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. But as Jesus said, take up my cross, take up your cross and follow me. We rarely, rarely see anywhere in our studies, uh, sociological studies, that people are finding happiness, really, in money. And money does the same thing to us. It gives us this sensation of success. Sometimes it feels like love to us. Sometimes it feels very gratifying. Sometimes it, it well, another thing it does, it certainly brings security, doesn't it? It makes you feel secure when you've got money. It also can bring you some friends. Uh, when you have a lot of money, you'll find people deferring to you and treating you kindly. And if you leave a big tip, you know, you get more attention, these kinds of things. So money has power to give you the feeling of well-being. What John's saying is you ain't well at all. You're, you're in deep weeds. You need to get all of that from the Father. This mammon, this love of money, love of things is from the world it's part of the world system that's meant to throw you off and choke out the Word of God and the love of God in your life. Be very careful. How do you say, well, how do I do that? We're going to get to that in a moment, how we deal with these lusts and worldly temptations. Then notice thirdly, he says the pride of life, or uh, as um, the translation in our ESV study Bible says, the pride in possessions. It could be translated either way. It's the word from which we get bio, um, and that can mean life's things or the material things of life, or it can mean your, the life you're living. It can go either way. But certainly, it seems to be the pride of possessions. And there is a pride that goes with possessions. When we have a lot uh, or when we have something, we take pride in it. I know because... I've been, you know, I have to move my, my personal library from the church over to my house, so I've been building these shelves. And I just, you know, I construct those shelves, and I look back at those shelves, and I say, boy, that's really, that's a good job, you know. And uh, got the new carpet in there, you know, got the carpet laid, and the walls painted, and put the shelves up, and man, I'm proud of that. If I had a fire that burned that down, I'd be really, really unhappy, very, very unhappy. You know why? I made a god out of my bookshelves. That's what I did. And so... They're just the smallest little things you catch yourself. You catch yourself, you know, you buy a new car and then you, you get away and you just, you just want to stop and admire that dang good looking car. Ooh, it's a good looking car. And I bet I look good inside of it too, you know. And so, you know, or you, you get that, that new suit of clothes and you go before 
the mirror and you stand up straight and pull your gut in a little bit. You know, I really look distinguished with these clothes on. You know, this, this is really good. Then, then your wife walks in. You go, oh, I'm just brushing my teeth, you know, instead of uh, acting as though you're not admiring yourself in the mirror. You know, we're, we're doing this all the time, very superficial things, just the, the little things that get you every day. You've got to discipline yourself. It's a battle all the time to watch out for the pride of possessions. Now, one of the classic cases, I mentioned the text here in Daniel chapter 4, where, where Nebuchadnezzar, this great, powerful king, he has the whole realm under him. And what does he say? He says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He sounds just like us right in front of our house in our new car, doesn't he? The glory of my majesty is displayed in these possessions. And that very day, of course, Daniel announced the judgment that was coming upon him, which came upon him immediately from God. Here's a man in the pride of his possessions. He is acting as though he created those things, he made those things, and he deserves those things. And they're all completely contrary to the love of God the Father in your life and from your life to Him. So let's remember how important these things are. Uh, some years ago, right before I graduated from seminary, Dr. Billy Graham came to our seminary to, to speak. And he said to us, uh, he was encouraging us in ministry. And you know, I was 20-something at the time. And I remember he, his encouragement was how to make it for the long haul. Billy, by that time, would, be, would have been, what, 60 or something? Um, and maybe his upper 50s, and he was talking about how to, to live for the long haul. So I'm listening because I'm in my 20s, and I haven't even finished seminary yet. And here's what he said. He said there are three things in his observation back in the 70s which trip people up in ministry. He said uh, number one is sexual immorality. Number two is greed. And number three is pride. And you can tell I remembered that sermon for these past 40 years. And he's right. And they're right here. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And this is what undermines men in their Christian walk, in their usefulness in this community. I'm telling you, I see it over and over again. Men who have great opportunities to serve, who are gifted eminently, and it's the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life that disqualifies them over and over again from being as helpful as they could be to us. Now, we've all sinned in all three areas, starting with the preacher. So what do we do? Well, we recover. We believe the gospel. We believe in forgiveness. We believe in repentance. We preach repentance wherever we go. That God receives us as repentant sons who disclose to Him, who confess to Him, who receive His forgiveness, and who then submit ourselves to Him for His service. And He picks us up, and then He leads us forward wherever we can serve in our own, own broken selves. That's how we recover. We've got to know how to recover in order to be useful because you're all going to sin today in all three areas. So gospel life is recovery, continual recovery. So that's what He's teaching us here. So he's saying, fleshly desires, acquisitive eyes, pride of possessions. They've all got to go because they're all from the world and they all mean to chew you up. Now, notice in verse 17, he's giving us a second reason why the love of the world is incompatible with the love of God. The first reason is all these loves in the world are from the world. They come from the world and they lead you back to devotion to the world. In other words, it binds you in the world. That's the problem with them. That's the first reason that it's incompatible because these loves of the world will not let you go. They're totalitarian. They demand your full attention. And they will not let you love the Father. At the same time, the Father is uniquely glorious. He alone is God. And so if you don't love Him with all your heart, you don't love Him. Because the only love that's worthy of Him is all your love. So they're incompatible because these things come from the world and lead to the world. But secondly, B, the world is passing away, and so are its lovers. 
He says the world is passing away along with its desires. So he's saying to you it's incompatible with God because God has given you eternal life. But these worldly passions are temporal. They're temporary. And they're all going to dissolve. You know how Peter says it. Turn back just a few pages in your, to the book right before this one, Second Peter. Some of you will remember we studied this a few years ago. And Peter says in verse 10 of chapter 3, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavens will. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. These astronomers who are so fascinated with all the galaxies, let me tell you, they're not going to be there. They're going to be destroyed, dissolved, burned. And according to His promise, we are waiting for what? New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So he's going to destroy what is, and there'll be a new heavens and new earth, just like your body. Your physical body is buried six feet under. It rots. The worms eat it. It's destroyed. And then Jesus comes back, and what happens? He reconstitutes your body. You have a resurrected body, just like the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to do the same thing with the whole world. It's going to be eaten by worms, or in this case, it's going to be burned with fire. And then what's he going to do? He's going to resurrect an entire universe. And it will be a universe of righteousness. Gentlemen, that's where we're headed. Why would you waste your time making mud pies when we've got this universe that's waiting for us? You're princes in the kingdom of heaven and you're wasting your time with this little crap and worrying about it and getting tied up with it and letting your hearts get bound to it. You're wasting your time. And when you do that, you lose your vision for who you are and where you're going. That's what John is saying. And this is who you are. You're the people of God. You're the people of destiny. You're the people of hope. And you're wasting your time with this stuff. And so what what are you going to do? So you amass this big fortune. And you've been chancy through the years. And you get to the end of time. So you've got these multiple millions. And look at how proud you are of yourself. So what are you going to do? Well, at the end of the day, you're going to say to your friend, Hey, my ash pile is bigger than your ash pile. And some of you have been climbing the ladder. And so what do you, what do you find out? You've been, you find out the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. You've been wasting your time going up all these rungs. It's going nowhere. It's the ladder to nowhere. So understand the foolishness of it all. Jesus said when he confronted the greed of his own day, you know, you don't have to be in a wealthy nation for greed to grab your heart. You don't have to be a wealthy person. You can be a poor person like most of the people Jesus dealt with and greed can eat you up. You can be a very poor person and be very greedy. And he told a parable to the very greedy, very uh, poor people. He said, you know, there was, a rich, there was a man who was becoming very rich. He was very pleased with his success. And he was getting more and more stuff. And finally he realized, just kind of like we have at the Wilson household, we have more furniture than we have room for it, so we have to put it in the garage. And, of course, we're hoping that our kids won't be so wealthy that they'll look down on our furniture and won't want any of it, which is what's happening. Their, their furniture is better than our furniture. So we've we got all this rotten, terrible furniture in the garage, so the Goodwill is going to get a big moving van here pretty soon. But we've got more stuff than we have room for. So what do we do? Oh, well, we'll put it in the garage. You know, hey, well, when the garage gets full, what are you going to do? Well, maybe we'll put an addition onto the garage. That's what we're doing. We got stuff in the attic. We got stuff out in the shed. We got stuff in the garage. We're running out of place to store all our stuff. So let's build another place to hold our stuff. And Jesus says, You idiot. You're going to die tonight. Then who's going to get all your stuff? Goodwill. (laughs) You've been an idiot. You're, You're building bigger bars to store all this stuff. And it's completely useless. You're a rich idiot. That's what he said to him. So, gentlemen, please, don't be an idiot. (laughs) It's wonderful to be able to gain resources in order to help other people. 
It really, <laughs> here's a guy you can help right over here. Yeah, he's the amen over here. You, you, can, <laughs> you can, and I agree. You, it's wonderful to have these resources, but it's not so wonderful to be just building more barns to hold more than anybody would ever need. You, you've got to be a conduit. So he's saying here, watch out for this. The world is passing away. And not only is the world going to pass away in the stuff of the world, but the people of the world who have devoted themselves to this stuff, they're going with it. They're going in the flood along with everybody else and everything else. So when you devote yourself, you destine yourself to be judged along with all the, the world that's going to burn up. But then lastly, notice the good news. God lives forever and so will His people. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Verse 17b. And of course what He's teaching us here is, look, you are the people of God. And here's how you can know you are the people of God. You believe the truth of the gospel. You are walking in the light. You are dealing with the things of the world in your life. Maybe you have some good days and you have some bad days. Maybe, you, maybe this is a bad, greedy day for you already. But generally, if you're, if you're one of His, you're, you're fighting that battle. And you're loving your brothers. You're, you belong to Him. And because you belong to Him, you're going to abide that is to remain forever. And who are you going to remain with? You're going to remain with Him. Now, gentlemen, this presents to us the key for how we fight this battle. If love for the world squeezes out the love of the Father, which is what it does. That's what a, 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 the weeds do. They choke. They squeeze out the love of God that you're feeling from Him and the love for God that you, you have for Him. It squeezes that out. If the love of the world squeezes out the love of the Father, let me tell you what the love of the Father does. Squeezes out the love of the world. So the more you study His Word, the more you contemplate Him, the more you strategize for your life how you can serve Him in all of your relationships, in all of your ethical choices, in, with all of your possessions. You're constantly contemplating Him and His kingdom. You know what's happening to you? It's been happening all along. Some of you, it's been happening to you for 60 years. He's gradually been squeezing out of you these lusts, and desires that are destroying you and, and that will pass away. So the way in which you deal, actually, with the lusts of this world is that you displace them. You displace them with the love of God. It's a very active pursuit of Christ that thrusts out and puts in the very margins of your life these battles so that the big battles have become skirmishes. Those of you who are new in the faith, you have some big battles to fight. And the battle is being fought real near the headquarters. And you feel as though the very control of your life is at stake. And you're, you're fighting this battle with all your might and main, and you're making some major changes in life. As you go through the Christian life, you're pushing the front out. Now, there are incursions all the time. Someone's trying to steal the flag, if you will. They're, they're trying to get your flag and trying to get headquarters all the time. But you have systematically been structuring your life in a way that most of your battles are skirmishes. If you've been walking faithfully with the Lord for a number of years, you've got a lot of skirmishes going on. But gentlemen, you have more and more confidence because you have more and more of the experience of the love of the Father in you and more and more that's displacing the uh, power of the lusts of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. That's the way it works. So the answer for us, every one of us, is to get to Jesus. I'm telling you, get to Him and love Him with all your heart. Figure out what He wants from you, how you can love Him more and give it to Him. Devote yourself to Him. What that does emotionally is that then you begin to experience real love, not the counterfeit. 
And when you experience the real love, you can see that the affair was really a very highly deceptive and destructive counterfeit of real love. Because when you're loving Christ and you're experiencing His love for you, you see that's a pure, powerful love that transforms your life and makes you more useful to everybody. The adulteress wasn't doing that for you. She was destroying you and taking advantage of you. Here's one who laid down his life for you. And he's purifying you and you experience that love and then you can see, you can feel it. It becomes intuitive. Why do I want an adulteress? Why do I want a girlfriend when I've got a wife who's faithful to me for 44 years and loves me? Why would I even think of such a thing? Why would I even use it as an illustration in a Bible story? That's the way it occurs to you. It's just outrageous because you have the real thing. So don't fight the battle without getting on your knees and worshiping the Lord and inviting Him to come into your life. And then you know what happens? He fights the battle. He fights it through you. Can I get an amen? amen. Thank you. He fights the battle through you. And that's the way you want to engage this. So that we're in warfare, we're fighting the battle, but we're not doing it with our own strength. Paul says, I agonize with all the energy that he gives me. It's agonizing. It's warfare. But it's his energy. The energy of the Holy Spirit working through you. You cast yourself upon his mercy and ask him to work through you. That's the way it's done. So John is saying, gentlemen, you belong to him. Here are the three tests. But just remember, you've got this battle to fight. And there's this world wants to choke out every bit of the Bible study and Bible devotion you've ever done in your life wants to choke it out. Don't even, don't even let it get started. Just keep cultivating your garden and get those weeds out. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. It's a pure love. It's a divine love. It's a powerful love. It's an overwhelming love. It's a love of the perfect one for rebels. It's the love, a gracious love, for those who don't deserve it. It's a love that fills our hearts and grants us everything the human being could ever desire or want. It's a love that takes us to places that our minds cannot even imagine. It's a great love. And we ask your forgiveness for the times when we have been willing in our flesh to trade this love for some cheap, tinsel, counterfeit, substitute love that is in this world. So help us today to choose you by the power of the Holy Spirit, moment after moment, in decision after decision, and grant us the joy of those who know we have everlasting life. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.